This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by NetSuite, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Download their free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, today at netsuite.com. Thanks to Sprout Social for supporting this episode of Motley Fool Answers. Sprout Social offers businesses an intuitive platform to help build meaningful relationships at scale on social. To learn how your brand can create real connection, visit SproutSocial.com slash fool today. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at Motley Fool. Hello, Allison Southwick. <laughs> I never know how it's going to come out, but anyway. In this week's episode, we're joined by Susan Weinstock from AARP to talk about the trend of delaying retirement, the aging workforce, and why it's often a good thing to work in retirement. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Allison, what's up? (laughs) Is that how you normally say it? I never know how it's going to come out. All right, whatever. (laughs) Well, bro, I have three things for you today. Three things? That sounds awesome. It does. It might sound familiar. They're really one thing, but all right, whatever. Just stick with me. So, for some of our more seasoned investors out there, you'll remember a time when when stocks used to trade in fractional shares. Oh, I do remember that. One-sixteenths, to be exact. Do you know why? I don't remember. Oh, here's why. Okay, this is crazy. So... Going back 400 years, Spanish traders used gold doubloons, which were divided into eight pieces, right, so you pieces could count, of eight. count them on your fingers, because, and thumbs didn't count, literally, so <laughs> everything was in eighths. They're all Simpsons characters. They didn't have five fingers. There you go. Right. So, unlike currencies that have a base of 10, Spanish gold doubloons had a base of eight, meaning that the smallest denomination was one-eighth of a doubloon. And when the New York Stock Exchange was founded in 1817, it was based on none other than the Spanish trading system. Then, in 1997, they cut that one-eighth in half to one-sixteenth, a.k.a., do you remember this? Mm-hmm. A teeny. They called it a teeny. Huh. And uh, they cut it from one-eighth to one-sixteenth during what was called the teeny revolution. <laughs> Probably the most boring revolution ever. Uh, It wasn't until 2001, close to 200 years into the existence of the New York Stock Exchange, that it and other U.S. exchanges finally switched to decimals. I was reading an LA Times article about about this controversial time of going from fractionals to decimals, and the article was citing some of the possible negative impacts of the switch, and they had this gem, quote, But veteran trader Bernard Madoff said that professionals will find a way to make money. Indeed. (laughs) And he was right. Indeed they will, Bernie. How's prison going? Yeah, so yes, it only took the New York Stock Exchange 200 years to switch over from an antiquated system of accounting, which tells you something about Wall Street's aversion to change and technology. So this is all a long aside, but again, try to stay with me. Basically, I'm trying to say that Wall Street doesn't like change and doesn't embrace technology, which brings me to my... Second thing, the battle between tech companies and Wall Street. Is it any wonder that young sassafras Silicon Valley doesn't love to work with stodgy old Wall Street? Often because Wall Street is interested in short-term gain, while Silicon Valley leaders can be starry-eyed entrepreneurs with a long-term vision. So one trend we're seeing is that tech companies like Spotify are trying to avoid Wall Street, such as during the IPO process. So let's remind everyone briefly how an IPO works. Feel free to interrupt me if I get anything wrong here. 
a company decides they want to go public, so they choose an investment bank for advice and underwriting. They go on what's called a roadshow, where the investment bank makes pitches and sells shares of the company to its favorite clients and cronies, often at a low-balled price. The favorite clients and cronies are hoping that if they buy the shares of the company, the stock will, quote, pop or go up really fast and high on the first day of its trading on the secondary market, such as the NYSE or NASDAQ. So then, these, again, favorite clients and cronies of the investment bank can unload the shares for a profit to people like you and me. Did I get that right? That's about right, yeah. So let's say you're a tech company going public in this scenario. You're using the IPO process to generate more capital by selling shares of your business so you can take that money and invest it back into the company and make it grow. Your major money-making event is when the investment bank is selling shares to its favorite clients and cronies, which, like I said, they tend to lowball the price so that the investors get that pop. means, as a tech company, you're selling yourself on sale, and the investors are the ones who benefit. Maybe some of them are truly invested in you and your company for the long haul, but most are just looking to resell the shares they got on sale for full price, again, when the shares go on the secondary market on the NYSE. So, did I get that right? I think so. Okay. So, Spotify decided to go a different route and just do a direct listing. Rather than selling shares to institutional investors in advance of the first day of trading, it allowed its existing shareholders to directly offer their holdings to the market. With a direct listing, the bank won't set the price. It's pure supply and demand on the secondary markets. As CNBC said, by almost any standard, the Spotify IPO has been a success. Granted, Spotify wasn't looking to raise any money. They had plenty of BC cash. Also, Spotify had a desirable name for retail investors, so there was probably pent-up demand. But could companies like Airbnb or other unicorns follow suit? Slack is, so we'll see if this happens more. As John Fitzgibbon of IPO Scoop says, we shouldn't expect Wall Street to embrace direct listings as a viable option, quote, because there's very little payday for Wall Street in a direct listing. Which is exactly the point, and brings me to my final and third thing. If tech companies don't love Wall Street, is there a way to make a better Wall Street? So, what's most wrong with the equities market? Eric Ries, tech entrepreneur and author of Lean Startup, believes that today's companies are too focused on things that revolve around short-term price increases, such as beating quarterly projections by Wall Street analysts, shrinking their budgets of research and development to cut costs, dealing with activist investors. He believes the market's focus on short-term quarterly results leads to a decline in innovation. And he points to a 2017 study by the public policy think tank Third Way, which showed that going public was accompanied by a 40% decline in patents within five years after listing the result of pressure to satisfy analysts' short-term expectations, they say. Hmm. This also makes going public less enticing for companies, especially with VC money floating around. They don't really need to to do it. So, by the time these companies IPO, and we can start investing them, meaning you and me, bro, most of the growth could be in the rearview mirror. So, here's that guy, Eric Ries, tech entrepreneur and author of Lean Startup, his big idea. Just last month, the SEC approved the creation of, did you hear about it? I didn't. The Long-Term Stock Exchange, or the LTSE. Although, I think it should be called like the LITSE, or something like that. Isn't that cuter? (laughs) It's a Silicon Valley-based exchange aimed at tech startups that want to go public while taking their time to develop their products and services. With the LTSE, there will be rules to limit executive bonuses, require more disclosure for milestones, and reward long-term shareholders with more voting power. 
Executive pay and bonuses must be tied to long-term performance, such as 10 years. Wow. Yeah. Right? So LinkedIn's Reed Hoffman, Mark Andreessen, and Peter Thiel's founder fund are investors um, in the long-term stock exchange. Of course, it's targeting companies that would be tech. Um, companies can dual list on the LTSE and the NYSE, and they hope to start accepting clients by the end of the year. It'll be the 14th equity market in the U.S. Isn't that crazy? Wow. Anyway, there's still a lot to be figured out with the LTSE, but it's exciting to see innovation, especially innovation intended to benefit those who think long-term. You know, foolish investors. And that, bro, is what's up. This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by NetSuite. If you're a small business owner, you know how hard it can be to get a handle on all the numbers, often because you have so many systems. One for accounting, one for sales. It's inefficient, and it hurts your bottom line. Well, NetSuite by Oracle is the world's number one cloud business system that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, and HR instantly, right from your desktop or phone. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with the free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com. That's netsuite.com slash fool to download your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. netsuite.com slash fool. Here's a question for all of you out there in podcast land. What was the average retirement age back in 1900? Think about it. Take a guess in your head. The answer is... 76, which is kind of ridiculous since most people didn't actually live. I was going to guess never. Like you just worked and then walked straight into your plot. Well, it was essentially it. If you lived that long, you were retired for like a year or two, and you only retired because you were basically physically not able to do anything anymore. Well, think about it. When they created Social Security, uh, people's lifespan was about 66. And everybody was supposed to retire at 65 to get Social Security benefits, right? Right. That's changed a bit. Absolutely. (laughs) Hey, who is that voice, bro? Where did that voice come from? (laughs) Well, let me tell you, that voice belongs to Susan Weinstock, who is the Vice President of Financial Resiliency Programming at ARP. Susan, welcome to Mountain Pool Answers. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's exciting. So, that was the average retirement age back in 1900. By 1950, it had dropped down to age 70. By the year 2000, it dropped down to 63. But since then, it has started to creep up a little bit. Basically, people are deciding to work longer. And that's why we had Susan come in here to tell us why this is happening and then what are the challenges of working well into your 50s, 60s, and beyond. So, welcome. Thank you Thank for coming. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, let's start with the numbers. What do we know about people working longer? People are definitely working longer. You're absolutely right. Uh, there's a bunch of reasons. Uh, we're living longer, healthier. Um, the age, the, the amount of time we spend disabled in our lives is actually shrinking. So we're living longer, healthier. Why would you uh, stop working at 50? What, what you know? What are you going to do with your life? So um, a lot of people have not recovered from the Great Recession, so they need to continue to work. But we also know people find purpose, fulfillment. Um, we hear about these people who they unretire. So they actually retire at like 66, 67, and then they say, wait a second, this is kind of boring. I, I, this, you know, working gave me fulfillment, it gave me a purpose, it gave me a reason to get up in the morning. It was my social life, and it's gone now. 
and I want it back. And so they'll unretire and they'll take a job doing something just to get back into the workforce, to have a reason to get up in the morning and do something. Right. When you think you mentioned life expectancy, anyone listening to this podcast has a very reasonable chance of making it to 90, 95. And so, when you think of retiring in your late 50s, early 60s, and then spending the next three decades of your life on full time leisure, a lot of people, that's not how they want to spend the last few decades of their life. Right. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a reason you find purpose. It's a thing that you do to to fill your day, but it also gives you meaning in your life. It, when you go out on a Saturday night with friends, it's something to talk about. You know, it's 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 so much of your life is spent working, and a lot of people really find that it's the major force in their life, and they don't want to give it up. And you know, the way we work now is a lot different from the way we worked in 1900, right? So you can be uh, a, a worker that sits at a desk. For many, many, many years. I mean, and that's what we're seeing. There was just a report that came out yesterday uh, that talked about people who are working longer tend to live in metropolitan areas, tend to have um, desk kind of jobs um, because they can and their brains are fully functioning and there's no reason for them not to spend time continuing to work. So that all sounds wonderful. And on the podcast, we've talked before about the value of delaying retirement, especially if you're financially kind of on the cusp there of not maybe having quite enough money, just delaying by a few years. Very beneficial. Higher Social Security benefit, more years contributing to your 401k, fewer years taking money from your 401k. That's all great. But there are some challenges to working later in life, correct? Like, some, for example, there's longer unemployment trends for some people who are older. Right. If you lose your job, it will take you double the time to find a new job as a younger worker. Wow, so that that's a, a disturbing uh, trend. It's also disturbing because if you think about the workforce, there are more jobs available now than there are people in this country to fill them. And so we spend a lot of time talking to employers about the value of older workers. Because in some cases, this seems to be the last bastion of discrimination. Like, it's okay to say negative comments about old people and um, things you would never say about uh, other people with regard to other attributes. But oh, being old, it's okay to make jokes. So we continue to say, these are valuable workers. In fact, in many cases, it's their institutional knowledge that's walking out the door. And what are you doing to ensure that Two years from now, all those people have left, and then somebody says, hey, let's try doing this, and nobody realizes they tried it three years ago, and it didn't work, and so now you're going to spend all this time and money because the institutional knowledge is gone. And it's really important either to retain those older workers, um, think about how you want to structure that job. I mean, just like, you know, it's sort of like curb cuts. You think about curb cuts, and they were made for really disabled people, right? But they're great for people with bikes. They're great for people in strollers. They're great for people with scooters. You name it, they're great. It's the same idea with workplace flexibility, right? I mean, new moms, new dads love workplace flexibility. Well, guess what? So do older workers, too. So we're older uh, employers can think about, how do I structure my workforce so I can have give that flexibility to my workers and they can you know, participate in the work? As, as they will, but they also bring so much to the workforce. Yeah, I read a survey recently that said that a large percentage of people would love to do some sort of a, f- 
of a phased retirement, basically going from full-time to yep. part-time and then retiring. Yep. But only 5% of companies actually have a formal plan for phased retirement. Phased retirement is complicated, because if you have a pension, it can implicate the your pension benefits. So if they say we're going to base your pension on your last five years of work, and your last five years or your last two years are you're phasing out, well, you just took a big hit in your pension, so you don't want to do that. Uh, so they need to structure it so that it will not hurt the pension plan. I think is is one of the biggest problems. You mentioned earlier age discrimination and that it's one of the last ways you can legally discriminate against people, and that's not just anecdotal. Legally, it is an issue where you can fire people where age discrimination is at least part of the reason why you're firing them. Actually, the Supreme Court decision in the Gross decision in 2009 said that age discrimination had to be the only reason why this person was let go. So the standard, the bar for proving age discrimination is higher than for other kinds of discrimination. Um, actually, there's a bill in Congress yesterday, just yesterday, it passed uh, out of the House uh, Education and Labor Committee called the Protect Older Workers Against Discrimination Act, POWADA is its uh, acronym. So this bill um, will write that what the Supreme Court did and make age discrimination on the par with other types of discrimination in the workplace and and change that the way that that the gross decision came down. Um, it's in the it, as I said, it's going now to the House floor. Uh, I can give you the bill number. It's uh, HR twelve thirty. Um, and the, there's a bill in the House too, and they're bipartisan actually. There's Republicans and Democrats on the on both bills. Um, so and then the, and the Senate bill is S four eighty five. And if people want to learn more about that, they can go to action.aarp.org/slash/protect-older-workers. Uh, and there's more information about the bill. And if they want to contact their congressman and and say I support this and I want to see this bill passed. Right. Just so people know, when you say the Gross decision, what you're talking about is a case of a guy named Jack Gross. Right. Fifty four years old was fired. Was able to prove that age was a factor, but the Supreme Court in two thousand nine said. Tough luck, because that wasn't the only exactly. reason. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yep, that's it. Is age discrimination a uniquely American problem, or is this something facing people around the world? Um, I imagine around the world, ages are going up as far as life expectancy, but do people in other countries face the same level of discrimination, the same problems that we do here in America? Is well, it- it's kind of interesting, because we. I mean, there's other countries that are... In, in population are you know older than we are, so Japan, uh, places like that. So the, I think there's a certain um, reverence in some c- cultures for older people, but there's also still the same age discrimination issues depending on the country. So uh, we've actually been working with the Organization for Economic uh, Cooperation and Development in Europe on the future of work, and one of the the issues with the future of work is longevity and staying in the workforce. And so we've been. Uh, we, we did a panel recently talking about the future of work and its implications for those who are over 50 because uh, automation, artificial intelligence is something else we worry about. You know, if think about artificial intelligence when you're looking for a job. Can that screen you out before you ever get into a, somebody, a human's uh, ability to see your uh, resume? Uh, and we worry about that a lot. And so we've been speaking at human resources conferences about the concerns about AI. Um, a couple of companies have have come up with things like, I want to hire people who are like my most productive people now. Well, guess what? They're all white guys in hoodies. Well, that's not good. You don't want that in your workplace. So uh, we want to make sure that any sort of AI systems that are put out there are not going to discriminate 
based on age or race or gender or anything. And so that's a new issue that we need to be thinking about. And I don't know if you all saw the, there was a whole thing on Facebook about uh, people putting ads uh, on Facebook for jobs. And, you know, you can click on the, why am I seeing this? And it would be because you're 18 to 34 years old. So someone 18 to 34 years years old would see that job posting and someone who's 50 would never even know that that job posting existed. So that's a real problem. I mean, we, don't, we, we want to make sure that we're inclusive of anybody who wants to, to be in the workforce. And, and, and it's to an employer's detriment to not think more broadly about who, who's in their workforce and to ensure that, that they have multi-generations in the room. I mean, you think about products that are made. Don't you want a variety of viewpoints about a product that you're pushing out so that it, you ensure that it, it, it's attractive to a different cohorts of people? Uh, so it, it just makes sense to us to ensure that the workplace is well represented by all of the multi-ethnicities uh, and generations that make up this country. When we're talking about someone who's an older or experienced worker, this is going to make it sound like I'm worried that the clock is ticking on my career here. <laughs> but, <laughs> but at what age may I start to actually feel real pressure of discrimination? Um, when do we kind of see that? kick in? It kind of depends on the industry. Um, I think I've read some of the Silicon Valley firms. The median age is like 28 years old. Um, I've heard in Silicon Valley, sometimes at 35, you're considered like old. Yeah, I've read some of those articles. Yeah. 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 So the Age Discrimination and Employment Act uh, goes into effect when you turn 40. So 40 and above is you're protected by the ADEA. Oh, wait, I'm a protected class now? There you go. How about that? Congratulations. But, you know, I hate to tell you this. um, Women actually experience more age discrimination than men. Oh, I'm not surprised. And as you will (laughs) probably not even be more surprised, African-American women experience the most age discrimination. Mm. Um, And then Hispanic women and then white women. But th- that's from our research. So yes, I mean it. It's, Any moment now. Any moment I, now. I, I, I I'm going to start not. being seriously. <laughs> well, I mean, here at the Molly Fool, it's. Yeah, I mean, the average age at the Molly Fool is uh, low 30s. If I, I don't know, mid 30s maybe. I if know. I had to guess, median age, average age. So this is a a, a pretty young a pretty young office at times. Um, but I don't know that I necessarily feel particularly discriminated against. I hope not. I hope not. But it's it's it can be kind of a challenge when um, this is a very social office, and depending on at what stage in your life you're at, you're going to be more likely to go out for a beer afterwards, or you're going to be more likely to need to get home and hang out and be with your kids. And so sometimes the discrimination isn't overt. It's not like someone's not actively inviting me out to a beer. Right. But it's just that you're you're not going to think to ask the the mom in the corner who you know has to jet anyway. Um, and so I think when when we think about getting older, it can seem like it could be quite sinister. Or look at the old person in the look at the old bro in the corner just being a crab, which is true. He probably is. But <laughs> I think you've made a few comments along those lines to me in the past. I've made a few comments on the show, probably. <laughs> I don't know, at least each of the last four episodes we've done. Um, but yeah, sometimes that discrimination or the way you get left out is not so overt. It's just, we're, yeah. not, we're not peers. We're not going to hang. Well, one of the things we talk to employers about is looking at their job recruiting websites. Because you can go on some of those websites. It's, it's really interesting. Some of them, it's like pictures, and no one looks like they're over 25 years old. Or they say, we're a fun, energetic office. Well, 
if I have, you know, I'm a mom with three kids, fun and energetic sounds great, but I got to go home at night and yeah. deal with three kids. So, like, I don't have time for fun and energetic. Yeah. But the message it sends is, you don't want me. You only want a 25-year-old, and that's it. So we've been talking to employers about, look at that job uh, recruitment site and, and take and, and, and see if you think it it does, you know, do that sort of thing. I mean, the other thing we see is uh, employers who, um, you know, ask your graduation dates or um, ask your GPA. Like, if you're 60 years old and you're applying for a job and someone asks your college GPA, yeah. really? Um, it, it says yeah. to that person, you obviously don't want me because who who even thinks about your college GPA after you're probably 25 years old? Yeah. So um, there's things like that that we keep. But, you know, the graduation dates is a real problem. We've actually worked on trying to get uh, legislation passed at the state level that would make that illegal to ask graduation dates or date of birth on a job application. Or, I mean, the other issue that we've heard a lot about is, and this has been a fight a lot of women's groups have been fighting, but we are in that fight too, is asking about previous salary. Um, because it hurts women, but it can also hurt older people. Um, at ARP, when they hire you, they don't ask your previous salary. We have an HR department that decided that there's a market value for this job. We as HR professionals should know what that market value is, and we're going to offer you a, a salary based on that market, not based on what you were making before, because that should have nothing to do with it. I assume most people know that when AARP began back, I think, in the 1950s, AARP stood for the American Association of Retired Persons. And mm-hmm. then in 1999, you went officially to AARP just because it's not just for retired people. Right. I'm the retirement guy here at The Fool, and I've talked before on the show about, like, I'm not so sure retirement is actually good for people. So I'm just curious your thought. Do you think retirement is a healthy way to live? Um, it kind of depends on the person. Uh, I think some people, uh, if you have the means, you can travel and you can volunteer. We think it's fantastic when people do a lot of volunteer work. And for some people, that's not really, you know, it doesn't it doesn't fulfill them. And they like to continue to work. That's why we want to keep it so that it, it, people do what they want to do. They can choose their path that makes sense for them. Uh, about a third of our members are working. We, you know, we'll go to HR conferences and people will say to us, "Why are you here? Uh, aren't you about retired people?" And we're like, "Actually, a third of our workers are our members are still working, and that number is only going to grow." So we want to be here because we want to fight for older workers and make sure they're getting uh, a fair shake in the workplace. So that's you know that's that's the gist of it. Uh, and and people should be able to do what they want if they want to work till they're ninety. That's fantastic. Thanks to Sprout Social for supporting Motley Fool Answers. What makes people love the brands they love? In a word, connection. And social media is where they look for that connection. Sprout Social gives businesses a unified solution to find and engage with and nurture their audiences through social. In one intuitive platform, see and respond to every message, join the conversations happening around your brand, and turn rich social data into actionable insights. More than 25,000 organizations around the globe use Sprout Social to create real connection. No matter the size of your organization or the scale of your social efforts, Sprout has you covered. When you need to deliver and measure valuable content, learn deeper insights about your audience, and nurture relationships with your customers. To learn how your brand can create real connection, visit SproutSocial.com fool today. That's SproutSocial.com fool. Thank you.
the implications for younger workers? Every once in a while, I've heard people say, well, the good thing about retirement is it opens up roles in a company. If everyone keeps working, then it'll be harder for people within the company to move up. Yeah, that's not true. Um, (laughs) So, that's called the lump of labor, and it's a fallacy. Um, Actually, the research shows that having older people that are active in the workforce and you know, productive actually benefits all age groups and spurs the creation of more jobs. I mean, think about technology. Technology keeps changing. It it, it creates, yes, there are jobs that we're going to lose, but we're also going to gain new jobs. And so, the idea that there's this lump of labor that's sitting at that the older people and they're keeping all the younger workers from moving up, it, it's not true. When people think about working longer, uh, we've read several reports over the last year or two that have come out from various places saying, there's a mismatch between how much people say they want to work, they want a certain percentage want to work beyond age mm-hmm. 65, but then when they get older, it turns out they are not able to for all kinds of reasons. So how can people, like for example, health might be one of them, right. could be age discrimination. I think one report found that something like more than 50% of people over age 50 or 55 end up losing their job involuntarily for one reason or another. So how should people think of that? They want to work longer, but how do they prepare themselves for the possibility that they may not have quite the options they thought they were going to have? I think the most important thing is to really be proactive in your career. If you, you know, make yourself invaluable <laughs> as much as you can, build mentorships both as a mentor yourself but as a mentee. Um, we know that multi-generational workforces uh, are very powerful. Having teams that work together in multi-generational uh, groups, uh, does a, there's, there's more productivity, absenteeism goes down. BMW did this really interesting uh, experiment back in 2007 where they had, they, phys- they actually like picked people based on their age and had them work on a production line together. And productivity went up, absenteeism went down, and um, the error rate for that line moved to zero. So they showed, and they compared it to where they had all just young and all just old, and this was much better. So there is a lot of, of good stuff that comes out of building that multi-generational, those multi-generational teams. So put yourself in there. Make sure that you're part of that. I think the health piece is really important. Manage your, um, your, your, your health. Uh, stay, eat, eat right exercise, get enough sleep, manage your stress, all those things that we should all be doing anyway. But it's also going to make you more, hopefully, able to stay in the workforce for a longer time. I imagine healthcare is a big issue for people and why they're staying in the workforce. We just had Fool Fest, which is a sort of annual gathering of our members. And um, we had this thing called eight-minute meetings, where basically everyone would sit around a table and have a conversation for eight minutes and then switch, and everyone would have a different conversation. I was leading one of those tables. I basically asked people, what are their plans for retirement, and if you're retired, how is it going? And I had a few people who have retired before age 65, so they're responsible for their own health care. And one guy said his, his premiums have gone up 20% a year, and if he had known this was going to happen, he would have stayed in the workforce longer. 
And that does, and, and that's one of the reasons why people come back into the workforce sometimes. Or someone is working part-time and they feel the need to go full-time because a lot of times part-time jobs don't offer health benefits. So that it's all in the mix. It's the pay, it's the retirement income, it's the health benefits. You know, being working offers a lot of things to people. And so staying in the workforce and being able to stay in the workforce for as long as you want or need to. And that's really our our, our mantra is we want you to stay as long as long in the workforce as you want to. If you want to stay until you're 90, go at it. If you want to stay until you're 65, fine. So long as you can make ends meet, have at it. But we want to make sure that people have that ability to make the choices that they want to make. We talked about the benefits of age diversity. Do you feel like that's a hard sell these days, or do most companies appreciate that? Um, it's a mixed bag. Um, we have this thing called the Employer Pledge Program. Uh, the Employer Pledge Program, we now have over 1,200 companies that have signed up. It's a pledge that employers make um, that says, I affirm the value of older workers. I affirm the value of a multi-generational workforce. I hire age-blind. I hire based on ability, regardless of age. This is not a heavy lift. It's the law. So we're not talking like they're doing something extraordinary, except for that they're doing it very publicly. It's all on our website. If you go to aarp.org slash employer pledge, you can see all of the 1,200 pledge signers. And they're from all over the country, and they're big employers, and they're small employers, and they do, they're in all sorts of different industries. And so we work a lot with them to talk about the value of older workers and what that means. And a lot of these companies really do get it, because they have... A labor, we have a labor shortage, and they need to fill jobs. And so this is a often, unfortunately, overlooked cohort of people that are great in the labor force. And unfortunately, there's this you know problem with age discrimination. But if you get over that and you see the value of these workers, uh, it can really work out beautifully. So that's what that's really what we're promoting. And we also have a job board, um, and we we post jobs. And employer pledge companies have a special seal on their postings that show uh, someone who's looking for a job. Oh, this is a company that's already said that they hire older workers, that they want older workers, and things like that. And we hold online career fairs with the only only for the pledge signers can uh, participate. Uh, we had uh, in January we did a part time online career fair. We had over eighty thousand people sign up wow. to uh, be uh, to, to to register for the the online career fair, and then we had about fifty four employers who they can talk to each other virtually. Uh, people can upload their resume. We're going to do another one in September, so uh, people can go to arp.org/work and they can learn about all of these different uh, things that we offer. We also offer in thirty eight communities around the country in person classes on um, how to uh, uh, how to find a job in the digital age. So if you've been in the workforce for 20 years, you never have changed jobs, and all of a sudden you're out of work, and you're like, I don't know what LinkedIn is. Well, it's a whole different world, right? So we offer an in-person class in 38 communities to teach you how to build a LinkedIn profile, how to look for a job online. Um, we also do a class called Sharpen Your Networking and Interviewing Skills for people to learn how to do an elevator pitch get confidence about walking into an interview and thinking about getting ready. And then we also offer a bunch of stuff that are um, online classes that people can take uh, at learn.aarp.org. Um, tough interview questions, uh, it's all sorts of things to think about when you're looking at you know, uh, getting a job. And we also have a resume advisor. I should mention that too. Uh, if you go to arp.org slash resume advisor, um, we'll do a free critique for you of your resume. Uh, there's, they're 
Uh, and then we'll there's packages that people can purchase at a discount if they're ARP members uh, to have someone professionally rewrite your resume. This has all been very fascinating. Thank you, Susan, for <laughs> oh, coming in. Oh, thank you. This has been fun. Well, that's the show. It's edited unretiringly by Rick Engdahl. <laughs> Our email is answers at fool.com. Bro's punching the mic for some reason. He's ready to get out of here. Ooh. <laughs> all right. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.